away, it is good, but it is great to come back home and we wouldn't want to be anywhere else. We truly miss you when we head away and we, um, we had a wonderful time. And one of the great things about heading away was the fellowship that we had. Yeah, well, it's a Shepherds Conference. It's a conference held at Grace Community Church. Three and a half thousand pastors and elders and leaders, and it's just a great time. It was great to return back to the Master's Seminary and see a lot of people. It was wonderful to uh, go with our dear friends Sam and Tamara. Lisa and I had a wonderful time uh, with them and, and, and made many good friends, uh, new friends, and met uh, many old friends. One of the great things about heading away was the fellowship, the camaraderie, uh, the reconnecting, but most certainly also the opportunities for personal growth, for reflection, for sanctification. The Lord always puts his hand on something when you're over there and, uh, and deals with you, has surgery upon your soul. But yet what stood out most was the comforting reality uh, of the theme of the conference, which formed the undergirding, uh, underpinning of all the messages, which was a reminder of the promise that no matter what, Jesus Christ is building his church. That was the theme of the conference, took great comfort from that. And Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it in Matthew 16, 18. So that's a marvelous promise. And, and promises from Jesus come with greater weight than any other, don't they? They comfort more than any other, most certainly. All other promises outside of God's promises are prone to lack of fulfillment. Therefore, they bring about a lack of confidence, if you will. But when Christ, in His Word, utters something, it's a done deal. It's something we can trust in, something we can cling to. And so the reminder that we were given at the conference, I, I want to give to you. Christ will build His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a promise. Another promise that Christ gives to us, also pertaining to the church, is that He will nourish and cherish the church, Ephesians chapter 5. He will provide and protect for each local church, He tells us there. So we can find mom momentum and motivation and hope in promises as those that Jesus gives us. The church is built one conversion at a time. And as we head toward Easter Sunday, next Sunday, Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday, it's a time of year where we think afresh upon the cross of Jesus Christ, the power of His resurrection, that we serve a risen Savior who died on our behalf, who rose for our justification. And Easter is often a time where we are moved to share the good news with others. We often invite our neighbors, our friends to church, where sometimes for them it's just the one of two Sundays per year that people will come to church. And so we, we make much of the cross of Christ and much of Christ during Easter. We preach evangelistic messages at Easter. And so in lead up to Easter, I want us to turn our hearts and our minds to another promise, another certainty from Christ, in His own words. I want to draw our attention this morning to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. So I invite you to turn with me there. This message will be somewhat of a theological treatise and then married in with an evangelistic message as we lead into Easter. We've been walking through the Gospel narrative of Mark together, and this portion here in John chapter 6 comes right after a portion we've already seen in Mark's gospel, that is, Jesus walking on the water. In Mark, we're shown that once Jesus and the disciples get to the other side of the sea, when they have that encounter with Jesus, when he walks on the water, we see that large crowds flock to him and the disciples. And yet the words in John chapter 6, verses 26 to 40, we obviously don't find in Mark's account. But here it is, there, in these words from John, that we see what also took place. And that is that the crowd of people had learnt that Jesus was now on the other side of the sea. They marveled about how he got there. He obviously walked on the water. 
But these people, that crowd, they had seen that Jesus was now on the other side of the sea. So they got in their boats and they came to where Jesus and the disciples now were. And in verse 25 of John chapter 6, we see what they say when they arrive. Look there. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They asked the question. Jesus doesn't answer the question. He did that a lot in his earthly ministry. We then see in verse 26 what he did say. Here Jesus cuts straight to the heart of the matter in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. We've seen time and time again in Mark, have we not? Massive crowds, 40 to 50,000 in number, flock to Jesus, and they're consumed with concern for their physical well-being without a care for their spiritual well-being. And Jesus confronts that exact thing head on here. They were coming just for food. They had just been miraculously fed, you remember? And they were coming not with hearts longing for Jesus, but stomachs longing for bread. And Jesus uses all of that to begin here what is known as the bread of life discourse. To call this people that stand before him to believe in him. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. What Jesus is saying there is that man needs to move from just caring about the physical but the spiritual. Earthly food perishes, but this heavenly food is eternal. And it is the Son of Man, Jesus, who gives food that leads to everlasting life. Why? Because God the Father has given the Son a certificate of authenticity, if you will. The people who have come to Jesus here, just for a full belly, they now ask a question in response to what they've just heard. Look at verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? They were missing the point. Absolutely. Here we see immediately the default setting of mankind and every man-made religion kick in. What they're saying here is, what works can I do to earn favor with God? That's what they're saying. That is why they ask in verse 29... That's where they asked the question. And then in verse 29, Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. Jesus then gives them the solution there. The work they must do is to believe on the one whom God sent. Another question in verse 30 from them, they are totally mystified. What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? They were of the mind that God's economy was to see something and then believe. Jesus had just fed 20,000 men, women and children. They had observed that, but they obviously didn't register. They thought that what Moses had done was greater still. You see that there in verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven. In verses 32 and 33, Jesus corrects their thinking on that very thing. They thought Moses had given them the bread. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is the Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In verse 34, after hearing about this bread of God that gives life, they then cry out, Lord, always give us this bread. But they have no clue what is truly going on here. They are unconverted. They are facing a Christless eternity. And the Christ is literally standing right before them, telling them about, them about this bread, this true bread out of heaven. But then in verse 35, Jesus then utters the words that bring immense correction to their thinking and immense comfort to anyone who's converted. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, 
after they've said, Lord, always give us this bread. In a state of unbelief, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. These words by Jesus bring correction in the sense that it reveals to them that the bread of life is the person of Jesus Christ standing right before them and not some crusty loaf of dough. These words in verse 35 bring comfort to the converted in the sense that once one has partaken in the bread of life, that is Jesus Christ, there is eternal spiritual sustenance. One taste is enough with Jesus. Just one. And Jesus says there, He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But then we see something quite startling. Verse 36. Jesus then rebukes the crowd for their lack of belief. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe and yet do not believe. They were given so much, they saw so much, but they believed even not even a little. They were not believing that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the backdrop, that's the context to all of that. And we see then in verse 37, which will be our main focus this morning, we see a truckload of truth. A flood of explanation as to why they didn't believe. A literal barrage of unfolding why all people everywhere are in unbelief. In verse 37, we see a single verse that is bursting forth with theological knowledge and tremendous truth that it literally is almost too much to contain yourself with. That's what true theological knowledge does. True theological knowledge. When received in humility, it doesn't make the head big. It makes the heart hot. I need you to comprehend what I'm about to say here. I really need you to comprehend what I'm about to say here. Our praise and our worship and our glorifying of God can only reach the heights and the heat of the depth of our knowledge of God. That is, the height of our worship of God correlates directly with the depth of our knowledge of God. Because our knowledge of God, that is our theology, inflames our affections for God. You learn about how great He is, your affections are then inflamed, and our affections for God drive our will our will. When we know Him richly, we will love Him deeply and we'll live for Him mightily. Now, I say all that because in verse 37 are some of the deepest, some of the richest, some of the mightiest truths found anywhere in Scripture. And I want to be upfront and say that for some, even for some who call this church home, these are controversial truths. The deepest truths often are. I want to front load this by saying that some of you may not agree with this. What I'm drawing out is not outside our doctrinal statement as a church, but if you do find yourself not agreeing with some of this, may it be food for thought, something to chew on. May it provide a platform for further study, for gracious and mature discussion. But I must preach this. These are Jesus' words. With all that said and with the context established, that is, the people have come looking for bread. Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms that He is the bread of life, the giver of eternal life. Yet they're still in their unbelief about Jesus. Let's now read verse 37 in the context of that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Contained within this single verse are five very significant truths regarding 
the sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation. I want us to walk through each of them, keeping in mind the context and flow of the narrative, and that is again that the people do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I want you to see first the reality and truth found at the very beginning of verse 37 there. Number one, I want you to see election. I want you to see it. Look there with me. It says there in verse 37, Jesus says in his words, all that the Father gives me. Stop right there. The people, they had seen and heard and been told about the Messiah from the Messiah himself. Why did Jesus respond the way he did in verse 37? Why was Jesus not dismayed at their unbelief or discouraged or downcast at their unbelief? I want you to tell, tell you the reason because of this. Because his confidence doesn't rely in the response of sinful man. His confidence lay in the sovereignty of the Father who gives people according to his will to the Son. That's every confidence that Jesus has here. It's here we see Jesus' mission that He is the bread, the true bread, come down from heaven, which obviously speaks of His incarnation, we see Jesus' entire mission is to redeem all those that He has been given. That He has been given. God the Father, we see here from Jesus' words, gives to God the Son. Look down at verse 39 with me for a moment. This is the will of Him who sent me, Jesus speaking of His Father, that all that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. There's zero concern, there's zero anxiety from Jesus that His work will be somehow incomplete or lacking in effectiveness. And the reason there's no concern or anxiety because of the perfect plan of the perfect and sovereign Father who has given people to his son does the father choose people the scripture tells us he does and the reason the father gives to the son is because unless the father gives unless the father elects sovereignly all will be lost because when one is lost they are spiritually dead totally unable to choose god god must choose man. A spiritually dead man does not respond at all to divine stimuli. And the reason man died spiritually is because of Adam's sin and that spiritual death then spread to all mankind, Romans 5. Inherent or original sin, we call it. So God must work. And God does work by first giving people to the Son. The doctrine of election, it is called. It's not an ugly thing. It's a praiseworthy thing. Let me show you exactly just how praiseworthy it is. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there in your Bibles with me. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Isn't it amazing, and I find it truly amazing, that what has been debated among men is actually what Paul praises God for. The very beginning of Paul's praise includes the fact that God has chose us, that is, believers in Him, before the foundation of the world. The book of Revelation tells us that before the foundation of the world, your name, if you're a believer, was written in the book of life. It's the very thing that Paul praises God for. It's here in Ephesians and in John 6.37 and countless other places that we are confronted, literally, with something that is very easy to read, but incredibly hard to swallow. And I really believe that it's hard to swallow for this primary reason, not soul, but primary. 
Because man, by our very nature, wants to see in the text of Scripture, man determining his own standing before God. That's what I really believe is one of the primary reasons. Man wants to look to the text of Scripture and in his own nature wants to see man determining himself, his own standing before God. But Jesus says it is the Father who elects. It is the Father according to His own good pleasure, according to His own sovereign will. It is God who determines man's standing before God. Salvation is what is called monogistic, monogistic, meaning that God acts independently of man, that salvation is, as is repeated throughout the whole Old Testament repeatedly, salvation is of the Lord. John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 makes this abundantly clear. It says, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We'll see in a moment that there is a general call to all and that there is everyone's responsibility. We'll see that in a moment, but it is God who determines, not man. God the Father elects and gives to the Son, not based on anything we have done, but before, like we've just read there, before the foundation of the world. God, the Father's giving to the Son is not conditioned upon anything that we've done. We weren't around to do anything before the foundation of the world. We weren't present. Only the sovereign triune God was, and that is why election is called unconditional. Now back to John 6. All that the Father gives me, in the face of unbelief, Jesus is comforted by the reality here that God the Father in the eternal plan of redemption is gathering up a people and giving them to the Son. They are a people for His own possession. I want you to understand that it is out of His abundant love. Not out of a lack of compassion, but because He's full of compassion. Not because He's lacking love, but because He is an abounding in love that the Father gives to the Son. We must not marvel that God elects some and not all. We must marvel that God elects at all. Election is where God gives to the Son, but election is just the beginning. God simply electing doesn't save anyone. Merely being selected doesn't save anyone. The Father, before the foundation of the world, covenanted with the Son to give. That's election, but it doesn't end there. For next is the second significant truth we see. Look at the next part of the verse with me. All that the Father gives me, gives me, Jesus says. The second heading is called an efficacious atonement. First we saw election, now we see efficacious atonement. You say, what does that mean? Well, efficacious just means effective. We're going to see an effective atonement here. By these words, gives me, we're shown the role and the very reason of Christ's coming. His incarnation, His coming down from heaven, becoming a man dwelling among us, was all for the purpose of ransoming, all for the purpose of rescuing, all for the purpose of redeeming His people, redeeming all those He was given by the Father. And Christ does this, we know, by bearing the awesome weight of sin and guilt of all those who were given to Him by the Father. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me. There's no uncertainty again here with Jesus. All those that are given by God the Father are redeemed by God the Son. That's what makes the cross of Christ so amazing. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, He didn't die so as to purchase a potential atonement. That is, Jesus didn't die to purchase some type of savability. No, as Paul Tripp says, Jesus took names 
to the cross. Jesus didn't die for sin on the cross in some vague kind of way, which kind of awaits those who may or may not believe in Him, like it's some potential thing. Jesus died a particular redemption that was for a particular people. He died for all those that the Father, by His sovereign selection and election, gave to Him. If you sit here this morning and you are redeemed by the shed blood of the Lamb of God, rejoice in that before the foundation of the world, you were given as a gift out of His immense love for you to the Son. And when Christ, the Son, died, He took your name and He atoned for your sin upon the cross. Praiseworthy truths. Just a few chapters later, again, Jesus' own words, flick ahead to John chapter 10 with me. Jesus says there in Verse 11 of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own. And my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Then we see those that are not his sheep. Do not propose or think for a moment that all are Jesus' sheep. Jesus tells us there, there's those who aren't. Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Then look now at verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Turn ahead now to John chapter 17. As I said, this will be a theological treatise and an evangelistic message. John chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. This is the Lord's Prayer, by the way. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, verse 6, and you gave them to me. Then look at verse 9. I ask on their behalf, look at this, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. The great emphasis there is that Jesus has come to do the will of Him who sent Him, the Father. Jesus' purpose, His mission, His assignment is intrinsically linked to the eternal purpose of God the Father. And the eternal purpose of God the Father is to give a specific people to the Son. And the Son redeems them. The sheep, not the goats, the church, not all. Those given to Him. Jesus died a particular atonement for a particular people. Jesus did the will of the Father who sent Him. And on that cross, not one of those given was missing or lost. The good shepherd lost none of his sheep 
John 10, 14. He calls them his own. And Matthew 1, 21 says, And you shall call his name Jesus. Why shall you call his name Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' death on the cross where he paid the penalty for sin by becoming the sin offering was not a potential atonement. Let me repeat it. It was an actual atonement. Jesus didn't die to provide the potential for salvation as though the effectiveness of his atonement is contingent upon man deciding. Jesus died to purchase the actual salvation for his people. It was a definite atonement. And he died for all those given to him by the Father. Now understand this. Because hell, Scripture tells us, is a place where the many will go. Heaven where the few will go, Jesus said. Because heaven, because hell rather is, will be full of people, abounding with people, we then know that the Father certainly didn't give everyone to the Son. That's universalism. We reject that. I want you to listen to the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon for a moment, very carefully, and if it doesn't make sense, I'll send you the quote. Listen to these words, quote. Some say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say no. Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follows a bunch of certain conditions upon salvation. Spurgeon says, now, who is it that limits the death? Of Christ. Why you, he says. You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon, Spurgeon says. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do that. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot be anything, possibly run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. Spurgeon says you may keep it. What Spurgeon's saying there is that Christ died an efficacious, that is an actual, effective atonement. And as Paul Tripp says, not to purchase some type of savability, but he took names to the cross. It was effective. This is a truckload of truth. These are praiseworthy truths, high truths, humbling truths, in fact. We did nothing at all. God did it all. A doctrine that makes man small and God big, that turns all glory and praise to his holy name, that it's all of grace, is a wonderful thing. So unworthy are we. You see, truths that make the heart hot with affection for God, the fact that He saved us, thrill us. And when our hearts have true knowledge, it ignites our affections and our affections drive our will. And when our affections are for Him and when our will is aflame for Christ, we then live for His glory. But before we move on, I want to show you something. I want to show you something that I found incredibly significant, I want to show you the reward that the Father promises the Son for completing this effective atonement. I want to show you this. You don't have to turn there, but in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, we read of the Son speaking of the promises that the Father gives Him. It says this, this is the Son speaking about the Father and the promises that He'll give Him. The Father says to the Son, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. It's in the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, concerning Jesus Christ Himself, right? The suffering servant of Yahweh that we read the details of this promise. 
It's there in Isaiah 53 that we read the fact that Christ's obedience to the Father's will brings about a reward for the Son. When Jesus redeems all that the Father gives Him. Listen to Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 12. You may never look at it the same again. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great and will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. The point's this. God the Father gave God the Son a mission to redeem the many that He was given. And upon the fulfillment of that mission, Christ then receives the nations as an inheritance. That's the offspring that Isaiah spoke of. He will see His offspring. This is the reward to the Lord. What's the significance of that? What's the significance of Christ receiving the nations as an inheritance, which are the nations that are filled with His offspring, that is, those that He died for? What's the significance of all of that? It is how Jesus Christ was given the majestic title, Lord. It's how He is truly the Lord of lords and the Lord of all. Let me show you. Listen to Philippians 2, 8 and 9. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to, to the point of death, the Father's will, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, Jesus Christ, the Lord. That's how Jesus was given the majestic title, Lord. So Jesus atoned for all of those who were given to Him from the Father, So we've seen all that the Father gives, that's election. We've seen all that the Father gives to me, that's the atonement of the elect. Third, I want you to see an effectual call. Continue on in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, look what it says, will come to me. will come to me. Why will they come? The reason they'll come is because God calls them to come. And when God, by His Spirit, calls, it is effectual, meaning it is effective. Consider the state of man. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that man is dead spiritually. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says, the natural person does not except the things of God, the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolish to Him and He is unable to understand them. What we gather from those two passages, what we gather from that is that a person is completely unable in and of himself to put faith in Jesus Christ until the Spirit of God quickens And brings them to spiritual life. The reason Jesus can be so certain that all that the Father gives him will come to him is because Jesus knows the ways and the will of the Father. Look at verse 44, John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
It doesn't say no one may come as permission. It says no one can come ability. No one is able to come to Christ unless the Father draws him. Powerful truths. Flick over to verse 65 or down. Jesus was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from his own free will. No, no. From the Father. The word for draws there in verse 44 is a word that denotes the idea of an effectual, successful, effective movement like pulling or dragging. The word is used in the New Testament to speak of fishermen dragging their nets for a soldier drawing his sword out of his sheath for getting dragged before a courtroom. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. There is nothing here that conveys the idea that God sits waiting and trying to woo a person to come. No. When God elects a sinner, He then effectively draws that sinner by His grace to Himself. Both, both verse 44 and verse 65 refer to the effectual call of God. The reason no man can come is because man is unable to come, because man outside of Christ is in a miserable, sin-sick state. What's the solution to such a thing? Only the sovereign grace of God. And when the Father draws a person, it is the effectual call upon that person's life that they are made willing by His grace So that's the effectual call where God draws people to Himself. It's where God alone turns on the lights. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to show you something very significant. This shows us exactly what is meant by an effectual call, an effective call. Look at verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they, may, that, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the state of the unbelieving, unconverted man. They are unable. They are blind. Now look at verse 6. For God, who said, Let shine, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, by His abundant grace, the one who said, let there be light, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who shines light into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when the lights turn on, when God turns man's, when God turns the lights on for man, what does man see? He then sees the vileness of his own sin and the beauty and preciousness of the Savior. And then what does he do? He runs to him. Why does he run? Because he's effectually drawn to Christ, because you would have to be out of your mind to have the 
visible display of the vileness of your own sin and the beauty of the Savior that will save you from that sin, you would have to be out of your mind not to run. And the reason you run is because God turns the lights on. Effectually calls. God does it. We see next another significant truth, which I trust balances all this out so as to not be fatalistic. We see there another truth in the latter portion of verse 37, everyone's responsibility. Continue on in the verse with me. All that the Father gives me, that's election. All that, all that, sorry, all that the Father gives, that's election. All that the Father gives me, that's atonement for that elect. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the drawing of the elect we just saw. And now we see all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me. That's everyone's responsibility. And this shakes off any type of hyper view of the doctrines of grace that kind of cools your passion for the lost. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Everyone's responsibility. This crushes any idea that these truths are incompatible with evangelism. Oh no, they ignite evangelism. God has an elect from who He will effectually call, but the responsibility of all is to call all. We don't know who the elect are, as Spurgeon said, but we are responsible by God to call all. Why would you evangelize if God has an elect? I'll tell you why. Because God commands you and I to preach the gospel to all. And it is the means by which God calls all in. That is why. This ignites evangelism. The greatest evangelists in the history of the church have embraced these high truths and gone out into the highways and the byways and to foreign lands and preached the gospel to all. Why? Because Acts chapter 17 verse 30 says, God men that all people everywhere should repent. There is a general call that must go out. And from that general call, the effective call by God's grace takes place and all those that believe come in. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 verse 14, many are called. That's the general call to all. But he said, many are called. And then what did he say? Few are chosen. That's the effectual call to the elect. Everyone's responsibility is to come to Jesus. If you sit here this morning and you haven't come to Jesus, God is declaring right now that all people everywhere should repent. If you haven't come to Jesus, you need to turn away from your sin, forsake your sin, look to the beauty of the one who out of his love went to the cross and died an atonement for sin. You must no longer sit here apathetic in your spiritual state. You must run to Christ. You must flee to Christ. You must give everything up for Christ. For the one who went to the cross, who was crucified, who rose again, who defeated death, the one who has power over sin and death and darkness, the one who says that if you come to me, you will never hunger and never thirst. Everyone must come. It is everyone's responsibility. The fifth and final truth we see found at the very end of the verse, last heading, it's eternally secure. We've seen election. We've seen an effectual call. And here we see eternally secure. 
Listen to John 10, 28. By way of the strongest and most emphatic Greek possible, the strongest Greek and the the most emphatic Greek that Jesus could use in the word, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast He repeats it again in John chapter 10. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me that all He has given me I lose nothing but raise it up the last day. From that first moment of saving grace, to that last breath when you enter into glory, Jesus loses none. Not a single person given by the Father to the Son will be lost. So, truckload of truth. God the Father chooses. God the Son redeems. God the Spirit secures. Our great and sovereign God who adopts children in orphans none of them out. What a comforting truth. I will certainly not cast out. If you come to Jesus today, you don't have to walk forward or walk an aisle. You can sit there in your seat and commit your life to following Jesus Christ. And He will certainly not cast out. There's some rich truths. Some truths to think through. To study. To allow. To ignite your affections for God. That you might live for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that you are a God who delights to show mercy. That you declare all men everywhere should repent and put their faith in Jesus. And that you gave a people to your son out of your love as a love gift and your son then took them to the cross. Father, we are but nothing and you are all and everything. Thank you for your saving grace. Thank you for your goodness. I pray for anyone here who sits here unconverted. They have heard the general call to all and we pray, Lord, will you now effectively, effectually call them to yourself. No one can come unless you draw them. But everyone must believe. Help us to live out these truths, to be inflamed in our very heart about these truths. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.